Welcome to the Class Divide podcast. I'm Curtis James and this is Reaction Episode 5. And I'm with Carly Goldsmith to discuss life after school. One of the biggest things that came up for me in this, which I think connects throughout the whole series, is basically just a lack of choice. It's something that is going to come up in episode 6 around catchment areas, but in this episode in particular, what a lack of educational support in education means to most of the people we hear in episode 5 is that they've been able to do stuff, but their choices have been absolutely limited by their experiences. Yeah, I think lack of choice is a really big theme in this episode. I think one of the things that is really hopeful to me is that once people get an, an opportunity and they are in a position to take it, they can really fly and do really well and do really great things. So I think for me, that really undermines this idea that if you're from a council estate or from you're for, from a poor family, that you don't have the ability to kind of do those things. And I think that from the people that I see around me and the work we do at the crew club, you know, I meet people who absolutely could be in policy, absolutely could be in politics, absolutely could be in medicine, absolutely could be in law. You know, I see those people all, all around me, but you're absolutely right. The reasons why they're not there really does kind of not start, but it is really affected by the choices that they've had. So that would be the choice of primary school or the choice of secondary school or what then they then come out with, what choices that leaves them going into college or further education and then how that has a knock-on effect in terms of higher education or if we're thinking about a different route, the lack of choice around apprenticeships, like the lack of options available to people to do kind of meaningful apprenticeships. So yeah, absolutely, people's choices are really restricted. And I think we've said before, I have a problem with choice in the sense that it's part of the marketization of, of education, which is this idea that you can choose. And I think what we know is parental choice has been at least one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for our children to kind of access decent quality secondary school because where people are able to make those choices and where those choices are available to them, it's because they just happen to live in an area where there's a catchment area, where there's a school, or they're able to buy into those areas. And so therefore they're essentially buying the choice for their children. And what you really want in an ideal world is you want every single school to be a fantastic school for all children. And then choice it, it kind of is, it's not a thing, is it? It's not an issue because if the school, you know, that's most local to you does really well for you and does really well for your family and your community, you don't need choice. So I'm quite sceptical of this idea of choice in education, but I think absolutely the way in which the education system is currently set up is that it's it's set up to, to try to give people choices at the next stage. So your educational outcomes, the decisions made around your education will open up or close down a number of options for you. And and I see, you know, in that episode, there was so much in there about the ways in which coming out with no qualifications, coming out with few qualifications, coming out with kind of a lack of understanding of how the system works um, really does kind of constrict people and confine people um, and keeps them kind of where they're at and prevents them from moving on. Yeah, and I think your story really highlights how embedded that gap is because despite you having the education you had in your secondary years, 
when you left that school, your story just really highlights, you know, that like just because you've got that amazing education, that lack of understanding or history in your family of the education system, again, just limits your choices. Yeah, it does. And I think I think often people make the assumption that you know these things. Like it was interesting hearing myself say, I think they thought I would have family members who could help me at this point. Or, and why would they not think that? Because most of the girls I went to school with, not all of them, to be fair, but a lot of them would have done. So they would have had parents who'd gone to university themselves. They would have had siblings who were in university. They would have had, you know, university would have just been an expectation for most of the girls. And they would have had, you know, a real understanding of how the system operated. And I didn't have that, not because my you know, my family are stupid, but because that just hadn't been our experience. And I think there's a lot of assuming that people will know how things work. And what's interesting to me is that when I, you know, I got a PhD, which was, you know, it's a big achievement. I'm not going to, you know, take that, take that away from, from, from myself. I mean, I did it, I did it with children. I did it, you know, in an interesting way, but I went into academia at that point, not really understanding how it worked. (laughs) So you're still constantly trying to you still you're still constantly operating like on the back foot because you're trying to figure out how these institutions that you really have no connection to or understanding of how they work and how you can thrive within them. I sort of struggled with that and and I and I wasn't sure how to be a lecturer in a university. I wasn't sure how to just be I wasn't sure what were the important things in that space and I think I made some quite fatal mistakes from my academic career really quite early on because I thought what you needed to be was helpful to deliver things on time to to kind of like um, volunteer for tasks because that's my understanding of what work was and actually (laughs) I needed to do the exact opposite yeah, I mean, my limited experience of the academic world, and I've not, I'm not an academic, and you know, I haven't studied in in the way that you have. But my limited experience in when my paths have crossed with academics is, you would have been overwhelmed very, very quickly. Oh my god, I drowned! Way. Like literally, I drowned, and I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I think at the time, you know, some of the senior leadership in my department saw me and just were like oh, we got one here. She'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. So let's give her lots of jobs. <laughs> but I think that you make me think of some, some, maybe some of the ways I've acted sort of in the past where because I always feel like my position is really precarious because I'm not too sure how I've got here. I don't have the qualifications really to be doing the stuff I'm doing. So I'm constantly waiting to be found out. And so I do, I felt most of the time like the very opposite of, you know, like, oh, I'll just make it as good as it needs to be. Like, I'm striving to sort of just do the most I can because I'm I'm so nervous that at some point someone's going to go, ah, look, you, you don't know what you're doing, do you? And so I think I, maybe I've suffered from some similar stuff to you, but in different worlds. Yeah, of course. And I think you're just so very, you've got this weird sort of feeling of gratitude for being where you are. And as you say, you're not quite sure how it happened, but you're constantly aware that it could all, or you feel like it could just all collapse in on you. You make one wrong step, one misstep, because there's something you don't get. Um, 
And it's the way, it's the ease with which other people talk about kinds of systems and processes. Like they know them so well. And it's literally like learning an entirely new language. So, you know, people used to say things like, oh, undergraduate or postgraduate or or this. Or, and I genuinely wouldn't know what people were talking about. So I had to learn a new language. I had to learn a new way of speaking, I, you know, all of the committees and the research centres and the difference between this and that. Like, I just didn't know. I didn't know any of this. And so not only was I given a lot of work because I would deliver, um, but I was also really trying to find my way through a system I didn't particularly understand, constantly with this anxiety that I was going to do something wrong and everything was just going to fall apart. And also at the same time, do it with small children. So my children were relatively small. They, you know, they were still in school at this point. And without all of the things necessary that actually supports a, a flourishing academic career. So, for example, I was never able to move near my job because we, we couldn't move. I don't have any family money. There's no bank of mum and dad. You know, that, that, that stuff doesn't exist. And so, you know, one of the things that a lot of a lot of academia like needs is people who can move, can be flexible, are able to sort of essentially just entirely focus on their academic careers. And I had, you know, a husband, kids in secondary school, I had a long commute and I there was absolutely no chance in hell that I was ever going to be able to move near my institution. Um, so there are other things that, you know, academia kind of relies on that I just I just was not in a position to be able to to offer and I, I think Courtney's story really highlights I think what a vicious cycle that creates. So if bright people like you, your yeah. brothers, Grant, struggle to know how this stuff works, oh, gotcha. then you end up with a complete lack of representation mm. in all those worlds that design policy, the way stuff works for society. Yeah, you do. And also nothing ever changes. And that's the thing that's so frustrating is that I was in, I was in academia for some kind of seven years then I, I left to work in the charity sector as a researcher and I did some freelance work and then I went back in to do a, a particular research project, which, you know, I worked with an amazing team. They were fabulous. But it's like those things were still problems. If you don't get people in that need other things of an employer and you don't give them the space to change the way things are done, then everything just stays the same and you just get a process where the few people from working class backgrounds who are able to meet the challenges of it and and I my, my hat goes off to those people you know they they flourish and they succeed but i think there's an awful lot of pressure for them to essentially change over time and they must change over time because you change to fit into a culture i guess it's such a strong culture kind of strong middle class, upper middle class culture in our universities. Um, and I and I and I absolutely applaud those people from backgrounds like mine who are able to make careers in that space. You know, I just I just found it incredibly, incredibly difficult. And and that will be replicated 
across different sectors, across different industries that you always kind of get. For those of us that that do something different and have the opportunity to do something different, you then come up against that, those big kind of barriers. Some people are able to to continue to jump over those hurdles. And actually for some people it just it just makes it quite some people just can't because of <clears throat> because they in the end they just think, actually, what am I doing this for? Or they think, you know, for me, leaving academia was very much about spending time with my my children because I'd been in an institution and commuting for a long time and that wasn't really doing my family life, wasn't really supporting my family life at all. And we didn't have the capacity to move. So I couldn't move nearer to work. So, and I tried to get a job more locally in the city and, you know, it's so competitive and it's so difficult and if people are lucky enough to get jobs at the local universities, they tend to hold on to them. So you don't get much turnover of staff. So all of those things are true. And then we wonder why the ways in which people make decisions, the, the kinds of policies that are created, they perpetuate this cycle of keeping certain people out. And then I can only, I always get to the conclusion at some point that that's a deliberate thing. Because then you just hold on to the stuff that you have and you don't have to share. And I just don't think that a class system in the way that it operates here in the UK is is particularly fond of sharing anything. <laughs> There's no sharing, is there? I mean, it's something I've been thinking a lot about over the last few days whilst working on episode six. So I don't want to give too much away about that. But this idea of just, you know, the individualistic sort of way that society works and and it's really interesting you saying that, that stuff about you know even if you come from a working class background and then you enter into those worlds the culture is so strong that you're sort of consumed by it and it's really hard for you to hold on to your own sense of self i guess i was thinking about the stuff that peter did your your lecturer and this idea of lowering the ladder well that's all well and good but you know if within six months you enter into a world and you start to be disconnected from those people you need to lower the ladder to, you know, the chances of that happening are even slimmer. I think the importance of people who do those sorts of things, provide those opportunities, spot those people. I mean, if it hadn't, I mean, it was Paul Philo at the Open University who taught me DD100. He was really encouraging and really supportive. And I still speak with him now and you know Otto's what 24 this year and I did that course when he was five months old and he provided me with my reference to go to to get into university he was a key person and then Pete has been was absolutely pivotal is absolutely pivotal he called me into his office and said oh there's this opportunity for a studentship and I was like what's that and he said for a PhD and I was like what's that (laughs) so you know, and he really encouraged me. He was like, you can definitely do, you know, you can definitely do this. And as I say in the episode, that just wouldn't, I would never, it would never have occurred to me had he not been so, um, had he not been so kind of supportive at that point. And then he gave me my first opportunity to publish a chapter and he co-authored stuff with me, you know, all of the things that he did that really helped me to, to take those early steps in my in my academic life. Um, and I will forever be grateful to him. And what's interesting is I didn't know he was the first person in his family to go to university. 
So he wore that very lightly. Like he didn't say to me, I was the first person in my family to go to university. So I'm extending a hand. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm being kind of very altruistic. Because I think had he done that, I'd have been a bit like, like, does he think I'm a charity case? Oddly, I don't know why that would have been my reaction, but I think it might have been. But he never, he, he was just not, he was just himself. And he was just like, oh, no, I think you can do this. So it was always about, like, not always about me. That's not what I mean. But, like, for people who provide those opportunities, you know, be make sure it's always about the person that you're providing the opportunity for. Like, I think you can do this. I think you have the talent. I think you definitely, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to really encourage you. It's it's all of that stuff, I think. that, And it's what Asa talks about, like, not having people acknowledging the things that he that he could do and acknowledging the strengths that he did have and in the absence of that you just sit with a lot of like how 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 would that happen i think the obvious way to look at sort of like leaving school without no exam results is that that's the worst thing about it not having those bits of paper with the exam results on but actually I think sort of listening to all these stories the worst thing is actually the mindset that it gives you that you're not trusted you're not believed in you're not good enough you're not worthy of doing this stuff and that you you can't go on to do good things. That, for me, feels like the biggest bit of damage. The bits of paper are sort of, I don't know, I think, well, I guess I'm a bit of an example of not having any of those bits of paper and still doing stuff. But that mindset feels to me like it is the most damaging thing to, to leave a young person with when they leave school. And I think it's interesting because like, it's the kind of, kind of psychology that it creates, which is that, you know... Like Asa talks about in the podcast, you know, I didn't have very much self-esteem and I didn't really believe in myself and I didn't really think I was capable of much. And I think that that in itself then goes on and, and is a barrier. And I think that the harm that's done to young people in that situation, because it is damage, and I'm not saying they're damaged, I'm saying that it's damaging to, to, to be in a position where you're, you run a system that routinely spits people out of it, that not only don't have the pieces of paper, but you're absolutely right, more importantly feel like they're unable to, to do anything. And then, so what do you want people to do at that point? Really, what you need is you need people to provide support around that person so that they're able to see actually that they are capable, they do have potential, there are things that they're good at. You know, there are places in life where they would make a huge contribution and, and be of massive benefit. Whatever whatever those spaces are, it doesn't matter to me where they are. Because I think that's what people want. People want to feel like they've got purpose. People feel want to feel like they belong. People want to feel like they're making a difference. I think those are in innate, innate kind of human desires, I think. Um, but in the absence of anything that looks like that for people in that position, I think you can get quite, like Asa talks about, like for a long time, you can get 
it can really stop you. So it's not the mindset in that kind of like Tony Robbins, all you have to do is see it and believe it and have your mood board and have your affirmations. It's not that. It's I think for me, it's something deeper than that. It's almost like a, a kind of wound that people carry with them that their education has in, has in some way inflicted. And we don't acknowledge that wound and we don't do anything really to help people heal from it. But we expect them to be able to survive in, in the world as it is, which is which is difficult. You just made me think of, uh, I'm working on another project at the moment where I'm sort of listening to a bunch of people who work in another sort of caring profession. They're in their early years in that, that, that world. And, and one of the themes in you know, what inspired them to get into that was all about relationships, all relational, about seeing someone else do something or having an experience themselves that was hugely positive and made them think, this is why I want to be in this profession. And you sort of, you, I sort of look at that and I think about the experiences and the stories I hear from, say, like your brothers and my own experience, which in many ways, there are, you know, there's some good people that were in our lives I guess but on the whole that relationship stuff was pretty negative and so no wonder that that those years after school were so difficult yeah it is all about relationships and I think I think there's a couple of things that I think are important to for me my thoughts coming out of that podcast were in some ways my brothers despite what you know you may think having listened to the podcast are lucky at least outside of school, because they're men and that you do have trades, you know, you still have got the trades. There are still plumbers and sparkies and bricklayers and painter and decorators and tilers. And those occupations actually are pretty well paid. So if you're a, a working, if you're a kid coming out of a working class or a poor family and you have an opportunity to get a trade, you can actually build a life for yourself. But I think for girls, it's much more complicated. So girls might be a bit better off in the actual school system um, because of the ways in which we're socialised. Not all girls, but, so, you know, generally. But actually, if you come out and you're female and you don't have any qualifications, I think it's something like 5% of constructive construction industry is women. Um, you kind of, that occupational segregation then hits you right slap bang in the face because you... You may not think you, you have the opportunities or you ne not, won't necessarily have the opportunities in the same way as the boys that are coming out because those trades, those skilled jobs, those high, you know, highly paid jobs just aren't on your radar. And you end up, the jobs that are on your radar are going into retail, hospitality, care work. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's absolutely, we need skilled people in all of those sectors and there is nothing inherently wrong with those sectors, but they are sectors that traditionally have been kind of insecure, kind of low status, low pay. And so, you know, this is where, you know, those things really then start start to matter. Um, and it's, and I, I would say it's more difficult, more difficult. I think the choice, again, choices, the choices are narrower for girls coming out of education with no qualifications um, than they are boys in terms of being able to earn a certain amount of money and support a family. Um, so I think that that's also, that the choice looks different depending on, not just depending on, you know, if you're, you know, from a working class or poor background, they may, they may, that may be the common denominator, but then other factors also overlay that 
and narrow those choices further or expand those choices in some places and not others. So what then happens to different people is influenced by a range of other things. But I think it's a, you know, it's a big issue. Definitely, definitely. And and you just sort of, that just brings to mind that the sort of, you know, connection to the awful negative stigma against young women from council estates mm. that's always been around about, oh yeah, getting pregnant to get on benefits yeah. and that awful, awful stuff that's just been around forever. Yeah. I know. And it, it infuriates me. I mean, I was, you know, I got pregnant at 19. Um, and I was living on a, you know, I, I was living in on a council, you know, we moved here to Whitehawk and I was living on a council estate and I had two small children and, I, you know, I looked very young at that at that time. Um, and you do, you have, there, is, there, are, there, there are different, people make different kinds of judgments about women, young women. Young women work, you know, living on council estates that they do necessarily young men. I'm not saying that they're any better. They're just different. But, you know, but but there is such a lack of options, really, you know, a lack of options at those points to earn a decent kind of amount of money. You know, if I'd had my time again, would I have gone back and done a tiling apprenticeship? Probably. (laughs) So I'm absolutely terrible. (laughs) <laughs> I think I think it's Ryan. Maybe both. Actually, a couple of your brothers probably said to me, "I'm probably earning more money than oh, my yeah. sister." Now. Hands down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, too right. Of course, absolutely, they are. Um, yeah, they totally are. Um, and and fair enough. Um, but it's just yeah. But it's 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 the things that might have been. I guess it's the things I know they wanted to do. It's the skills I know they have and the, the the things I know, you know, that they could be capable of. And if they'd picked their occupation with the full array of options available to them and they'd they were tilers and painters and decorators, then great. But we know that's not how it works. Yeah, I didn't have time to include it in the episode, but I think it was Aaron who did some graphic design work wasn't it at, at Brighton Hove Council and and sort of like a sort of apprenticeship scheme, but that sort of fell apart because yeah, he did. again, actually similar stuff to to maybe some of the stuff I would have encountered where they sort of expected him to work for next to nothing to continue to become a graphic designer. So how can you do that when you you know don't have family support? Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's a lot of that happening. So you know, Aaron would have liked to have been a primary school teacher. He'd have made a brilliant primary school teacher, but you know, he left school with no qualifications. There were things that they actually wanted to do and there are skills that they possess, which meant that actually there were other things and other options that could have been available to them. It's a bit like the conversation we have around work experience and, you know, or internships or it's okay to have an internship, but it has to be paid, you know, if you can't afford to live where that particular industry is, often London or often cities that are more expensive, how are you supposed to to kind of do that? Um, so there are all of those barriers that we know exist. And if you don't have family money, if you don't have family connections, if you don't have, and I think in particular, which was different actually to when I was growing up, although the housing issue did affect me because we couldn't afford to live in, move into London, I think that has intensified enormously. So, you know, I mean, I, I see that in my own family now, which is people... Who are who are needing to live and work in London because that's where the industry is that they are in, 
but absolutely being being pretty much unable to live there because the cost of housing and the availability of housing, the cost of housing is so high, it essentially takes up all of their income. And that's completely unsustainable. You can't work full time just to pay someone else's mortgage. But plenty of, not even necessarily young professionals, plenty of people are in that situation. Um, and I can't see any policy from anywhere, really, that is going to really transform that landscape. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, I was thinking about your sons who and, and my experience of getting into creative industries and how I don't think if I was sort of 17 now, I don't think I would have been, I don't think I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I don't think I would have had those experiences again, partly because of housing, cheaper housing, able to get housing benefit for a bit, being allowed to go off and learn a bunch of stuff, almost like a sort of, you know, a made up degree basically in how to make radio and how to do all the stuff I did. But it, it sort of worries me so much that all those kids who could definitely do that stuff from Whitehawk just won't potentially be able to do that stuff. And so what do we end up with? Again, more, even more sort of monoculture of all people from the same backgrounds making all that stuff that tells stories and does all that stuff that, again, just continues the cycle. Oh, absolutely. And I think it is getting worse. I think if we'd been a group of siblings growing up now, I mean, the assisted place, I mean, don't get me wrong, I have massive problems with the assisted places scheme, huge problems with it. Because, it, you know, okay, fine, you may, you know, put a hand out and pull one, not pull one person out, like I was in some kind of terrible place. But, you know, you may think that that's what you're doing, but actually what impact then does that have for everybody else? You know, you're doing absolutely nothing to to improve everybody else's circumstances. So I have real issues with it. Nonetheless, it's not, obviously, it's not a thing anymore. Um, you know, I think private schools offer fewer scholarships and fewer opportunities. And, you know, I've, I know some people that are sort of looking and going through a similar process now and they're offering like part remission on fees. I mean, I don't think private schools should exist. So, you know, but, you know, they will offer part remission on fees. But if you're from a family like mine, you know, if we'd have been expected to pay anything, we wouldn't have been able to take that opportunity. Um, you know, my brother, Ryan, talks in the in the thing about um, being able to get a Saturday job, you know, being like tiling. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, I understand the importance of health and safety and all of those things and insurance and that that's all very important. But I know that on the building and in the trades, it's it's more difficult to get work experience. It's more difficult to get a Saturday job. It's more difficult to get that little foot in the door. Um, and so he potentially might not have had that opportunity at that point, you know. Um, so I actually think it's it, it was difficult for us, but I think it's it is actually like objectively harder now for some of the kids that we're seeing here at the crew club one of the experiences my brother ryan describes is going into mcdonald's recently and seeing a lot of kids from stanley who were at the rehab around the corner and obviously my brother acer has had his own experience of going into to rehab and, and his own kind of struggles with addiction which we are incredibly fortunate to be in a situation where, you know, he's in recovery and, and he's doing really well and has been doing well for, for a while now. So it's been the local elections here recently and I've, I'm hearing a lot, this whole kind of like antisocial behaviour kind of talk, this sort of punitive criminal justice chat 
Um, and if you live in Brighton and Hove, one of the things that you'll know is that we have a, a, a high number of people who are homeless, have a, a large homeless population. You know, we have a drug problem in the city. I mean, I think the whole country has a drug, drug problem, maybe the whole world, but the city has a drug problem. And so I'm increasingly seeing people who are clearly incredibly distressed and in a terrible state of physical and mental health, who are obviously having to service quite significant drug and alcohol issues in the city. And I just want to say that, yes, if you're trying to get your coffee from wherever and you see people in the street who look to you like they're homeless or they've got drug problems. I know that a lot of people feel quite frightened about that. And, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't. Well, not, not, I'm not saying you shouldn't. Just have a little bit of a think about what what's happened in the life of that person because I firmly, firmly, firmly believe no one chooses that. No one chooses that. And I think one of the interesting things about this podcast series is that there's a context to that. There's a context of you know, challenges in families, of lack of education, lack of options, lack of choices, you know, our terrible drugs laws, which are so harmful, not being able to access proper psychological support, not being able to access rehab. So one of the things that's amazing to me about Acer is he went through the rehab process, but essentially he's he's being expected to stay clean and he, and he is somehow without any ongoing psychological support. I mean, it's almost like we're setting people up to to fail again. I just want to say that because I think it's really important, particularly in Brighton and Hove, because there's so much of it that's visible on the streets in town when, when you're out and about. But there, there is a, there are lives behind this, behind the addiction, behind the homelessness. There are people and there are lives, and I just and I just really worry that we get we're going back to a place where. It's just about the criminalisation of those people, the problematization of those people, othering them and saying, actually, what we need to do is we need to clean them off the streets. Episode six starts with Darren McGarvey basically talking about this very thing. Oh, really? Suggesting that, you know, when you see those people on the streets, that, that, that social exclusion, he would bet it starts in a classroom. Um, and then works its way to that that situation. I, I've probably terribly misquoted him, but listen to episode six because it's right at the start of the episode. Um, and uh, you know, because because yeah, I mean, it's really I think easy to sort of see people in that situation and forget, like what's led up to that. No one would choose it. I, I don't care what anyone says. No one would choose it. And so we have to think differently about it, and we have to do different things about it. But I think when Ryan talked about that, going into McDonald's, you know, and seeing a load of his friends and when he makes that very powerful statement at the start of the podcast, you know, through the podcast about all of the who who knows who've had terrible life outcomes. You know, no one brings a child into the world and, and, and wants that to be their future. And no one is born into the world and wants it to be their fu- that to be their future. It doesn't work like that. I just wanted to end this reaction episode on a small positive, something that Class Divide are involved in 
the mentoring scheme that I know you're mm. mentoring on uh, at one of our I am, local schools. My lovely mentees. So, yeah, say a little bit about that because I think you know that's that's something that to me feels super important. You know, I benefited from an unofficial mentor who was an old teacher, and I, I can I just see that role as you know a kid having this person that's coming in that's from a bit of an outside distance perspective believing in them and the impact that can have so yeah it'd be really good to hear a little bit about that experience we're mentoring at brighton um aldridge academy backer and the idea is that you know you've got a group we do sort of small group mentoring um in the school and we've had three meetings with our mentees now and i think our ambition is that we will follow that group all the way through so they're in year seven at the moment, but that we'll follow them all the way through school. One of the things I think it's so that's been so important about that process is that, you know, on our third meeting, I actually finally feel like I have kind of got to know the young people a little bit. Um, and we're having the kinds of conversations that we might not have had at home. So I certainly didn't have at home, not because my parents, you know, <clears throat> didn't think these things were important, but just because... Yeah, there wasn't enough space really to sit down and say, you know, and, and what are your thoughts about the things that you want to do when you get older? What what do you think your skills are? So this this time round we did a whole section on what do we think they're really good at? You know, um, and I was able to say three meetings in, so they said what they felt that they were good at. And I was able to kind of like push that a little bit and say, oh, but I, you know. I think you're a great, you've got great leadership skills. And you're like, I gotta look at you. <laughs> you know, leadership skills like, yeah, you you're you've captained your football team. You know, you're that sounds to me like you've got brilliant leadership skills. So it's just being able to create space or have space for them to think about the things that they're good at. So the mentoring really is about giving young giving young people a person, an interested adult who's going to ask them some questions about themselves to really help them think through what they're really good at, what their strengths are, to give them a bit of an insight into how that can translate out, you know, both in school and outside of school and to kind of give them, I think, encouragement more than anything else. Um, and a voice outside of family, a voice outside of teachers, a voice outside of their kind of circle of people that they already have that says I think you're brilliant you can absolutely do this like what what how can we help yeah what do you need how can you be supported um so I'm really really pleased to be part of that mentoring scheme it's so good to hear about a sort of positive project and also it might be small steps and like you say there's a limit to how much effect that might have and it feels like it's sort of connected to some of that mindset stuff we were talking about but um it's the beginning i think of a whole bunch of changes and, and i just want to mention what's coming up in episode six which is you know a bit of a transition in the series really you know we've we've heard a lot of history we've heard a lot of what's been happening and, and or not happening and episode episode six is the beginning of what I think we feel is is you know it's basically saying to the city what can we all do to 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 fix this stuff because it is going to take a whole bunch of people who maybe don't realize it's their responsibility 
to to make some changes to do something different and and to to think differently about about education and and how the city educates its children so it's exciting to hear that sort of almost macro level thing happening in a school but also that we're moving into with a series and certainly with a campaign and pushing for some wider changes some system changes that's going to actually you know hopefully impact this on a sort of deeper systemic level because I think there are two points that are interesting about that. One is what Courtney said in the podcast, which I thought, I mean, I really enjoyed, can I just say, hearing everyone else's stories. I mean, I really, you know, there are so many parallels. And it's nice because sometimes when you're in this situation, you feel like like you're just on your own with it. You know you're not, but you feel like you are. And it was so lovely to hear about Courtney. It was so lovely to hear about Grant. It was so lovely, actually, Curtis, to know a bit more about you because, you know, we've had some conversations, but... Most of what we do is, right, what do we need to do for the campaign? <laughs> Quick. So Courtney made a comment which I thought was absolutely correct, which is that until you start to get people who have advantages and have privilege to think about their advantages and their privileges and act differently, you know, there's only so much that we can do from people from working class and poor backgrounds. And I think that moving into the next phase of the campaign, essentially that's the thing we're going to be asking people to do is to acknowledge their advantages, ask them to make to think about things a bit differently, ask them to acknowledge those privileges and to act in a different way. Um, so it's going to be interesting that we're going to be putting some of this into practice. And I'm going to be fascinated to see how susceptible, you know, our city is to thinking and acting differently around education. And I wonder whether, you know, 13 years into a Tory government, cost of living issues, people very much feeling or very much seeing, being aware of those kinds of inequalities in a way maybe they wouldn't have been before. I don't know. Maybe. Whether or not that creates the conditions necessary for people to actually, like, own that. It'll be interesting to see what we have to do and if we can actually make that change. So I think what Courtney said is absolutely right, because as far as I'm concerned at the moment, that in a way, maybe again, maybe I'm a bit cynical, but the system is operating in. So the system is working. Like We always talk about the system not working, but actually the system is working within the current framework. But what we want to do is we want to change the <laughs> change the framework you know, um, which, you know, is, is no small task, but it'll be interesting to see how far we can get with that. And I think the other thing that's really, really important, and it was amazing because we had this at the Hustings, is local people holding people in power to account. And I think that there has been an absolute absence of that from this side of the city. Not an absence, there have been pockets of it, but there's been no kind of collective effort focused on two or three key things um, where people have said, these are the things that we want. These are the changes we we want to be made. And actually we are going, if you, we're going to put pressure on you to, to support those changes. And then we're going to be at you all of the time to make sure that you keep those promises. Now, you know, we'll see only time will tell. But I think one thing is for absolutely certain is that, you know, I think we've raised awareness around the importance of the education thing as a neighbourhood, not as a kind of personal trouble. And I think that that's kind of very much how it's been experienced. 
it's it's my problem it's a problem of me and my family what we're saying is that no this is a collective thing it's a it's a common experience and actually we're only going to change it if we come together to change it um because i think other areas of the city in the past have been very effective at, at, at overturning decisions or campaigning to maintain those advantages that they have and i think for the first time maybe ever on the education issue there is a there is a kind of a, a, a balance to that which is our voice and when i say our voice i don't mean you know i mean class divide as a campaign group saying no actually there are things that we want out of education there are changes that we know need to be made to make the city fairer and i think that i think it's going to change the dynamic of how decisions are made i mean at least i hope it will um but again you know the next three you know the next few years are, are going to be really important i think particularly if we have a labor government as well you mentioned the hustings that we had um last week and and what felt so powerful about that you know obviously my voice is in this podcast but what i really felt at the end of that was i've got all of these people behind me like we're working together right and i might just be the voice in this podcast and we've interviewed lots of people but we've sort of you know somehow managed to bring a lot of people like you say maybe felt an individual responsibility like this is my fault i'm doing something wrong who are sort of going no we're going to stand up to 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 this now uh, and work together this isn't something i've done wrong um i'm gonna i'm realizing this is a system thing and it was just felt so good at the end of that hustings yeah it did it felt amazing and it really gave me a lot of hope for what we can do going forward because i think for a while like for quite a long time the campaign team has been doing a lot um but we've been a we've been a small group and i think one of the things that this has shown us is that a we've got fantastic support from a range of local people and residents and that you know all of the hundred and odd people that that showed up on that night want this to change and we were able with the help of emily the marvelous emily we were able to to make that happen in like three weeks so what we can do in a more systematic way over the course of a few months or a couple of years i feel incredibly excited to see the changes that we might be able to to bring to life um and i think that it will be a better city if we're able to make some of the changes that we think are important i just want to say um regarding support and the fact that we have been quite a small team if you're a resident listening to this get in touch with us you know get involved we really want more people part of this and if you're from further afield we're going to be hosting a couple of online events basically answering questions from people who have sort of got in touch saying how can we be involved and but also an educators one as well because I sort of feel like you know I don't want the podcast just to sort of live in this sort of vacuum online and I think it's really important we have some conversations that come out of this and also grow the activity and the support that seems to be going on on Twitter and online about you know lots of support for the podcast so really keen so if you're not signed up from our newsletter make sure you sign up for that and I'll put a link in the in the um, show notes for that so Carly any further thoughts before we before we end and I mention about next week's episode no I can't wait for episode six 
so yeah, I mean, episode six, uh, its working title at the moment is Catchments and Admissions, um, and you know, it's it's really a, a sort of call, really, to the city um, to to say this the current system is really unfair um, and it needs to change, um, and. We're going to offer up some ideas on how it could look different, what needs to happen to make those changes. And so I'm also excited to get this one out there because it feels like it's the sort of, you know, the beginning beginning of pushing for some, some real action to, to make things fairer. So I think it's probably time for us to bring this reaction episode to a close. Thank you, Carly, for taking part in that um, brilliant discussion. Feel free to like and subscribe the podcast wherever you access it. Um, thanks for listening. See you next week.